I was 19 years old and I had dropped a friend off at their apartment complex and uh, this guy runs up to my window, knocks on it, says, hey man, you wanna buy some weed? I said, nah, bro, I'm good, I don't do that. He said, oh, okay. And uh, I thought that was that. He turns back around. Hey, excuse me. Hey, bro, you want to buy some weed? I said, I just told you I'm good. I don't do that. He says, oh, okay. Turns around, sticks his hand in his hoodie. I don't see it, but I see like the silhouette of what's in his pocket. And he points at this one. He says, I'm going to ask you one more time. Do you want to buy some weed? I was so confused. I'm like, so, like, is this a robbery? Is this a forced drug transaction at gunpoint? I'm so confused. But before I knew what, what, what was happening or could fully process it, the spirit of God on the inside of me, like fire, like in my belly, just, I got hot, just took over. And before I knew what had happened, I had opened the door. I was out of the car and I was in his face like this. And I said, do you know who I am? He said, what? I said, no, do you know who you are? And he goes, are you preaching to me? And I said, you obviously don't know who I am and you really don't know who you are. And he says, you don't know who you're dealing with. You trying to preach to me? You want to talk to me about heaven and hell? Is that what, where we going with this thing? Let me tell you about hell. And he pulls out, I thought it was another gun or something like that. He pulls out a wad of cash that thick. Huge, just all hundreds. Throws it on the ground. He says, you want to know who Satan is? That right there is the devil. He points to the money. And he starts telling me all the things people will do for money. And he starts telling me about his mother prostituting herself to make ends meet. And him being four years old with nowhere to go, so he would hide under the bed as bad men would come in and out all night. He began to tell me about being six years old in the streets looking for food and some of the things he would have to do to survive. What should have been a 40-second encounter on the streets that ended with him taking my money, I guess by agreement at gunpoint, <laughs> turned into a four-hour conversation in the parking lot of a McDonald's sitting on the corner. And at the end of the four hours, he gave his life to Jesus. And if I had ever had a defining ministry calling kind of angels in the sky shouting at me moment, speaking to my vocation in life, it was that moment where I heard the Lord after that say, you will do this for the rest of your life. You will love the guns out of their hands. But I was angry because the only thing I had ever seen from preachers were, were in my life, they were either very wealthy and they were swindlers or they were very poor and they had to work three and four jobs just to sustain the ministry. And I said, God, I don't want to do that. I do not want to do that. And I was majoring in TV and film production in college. And I said, I want to change culture. I want to create culture. I can disciple way more people through a movie than half these pastors out here. So I majored in communications, broadcasting with a, with a, a concentration in film production, and then a, a, also a comp, uh, concentration in performance. And um, so I was going to New York, going to New York City or Hollywood. Landed a job in New York City right after college. Went to Brooklyn with this nagging encounter. You will do this for the rest of your life. 
sat in my belly. And so I, I found the perfect job. It was a, a producer who had a big contract with some major car manufacturers doing national ad agency commercials and working with celebrities to, to be in those com- commercials for endorsements and different things. And I'm like, wow, I get to shadow this guy. Meanwhile, my, my aunt, who was a civil rights icon and a legendary musician, had just passed away. So I get a phone call from my cousin. She's like, come hang out with us. She was on Broadway at the time. So now I'm hanging out with like the Broadway stars and and she's like, hey, maybe you could be the, the publicist for my mother's estate. And so I'm thinking, dude, I'm, I've made it. Like I'm at the top of the top. Elton John, Madonna, Michael Jackson, who was still alive at the time, had sent flowers to our family home. I'm like, yo, I'm at the top of the mountain of influence. I'm shifting culture right now. You just, you wait, New York City. I hadn't even collected one paycheck. I was in New York looking for an apartment. And the producer that I was shadowing had a nonprofit organization called New Life of New York City. It was located in Brooklyn. And he invited me to a prayer meeting and we were talking about how I could work in the industry during the day and then in the afternoons do this after school program, helping mentor young men and women and keeping them out of the street life. And I'm like, yeah, this is perfect. This is a great fit. I'm in a prayer meeting and during the prayer meeting, I hear the Lord. Well, I didn't know it was the Lord. I thought it was just me being distracted. I just kept thinking, Nashville, Nashville, Nashville. I'm like, Nashville, what's with Nashville? I'm in New York, baby. (laughs) I get out of the prayer meeting and I have a missed voicemail. I listen to it. Hello, this is Sunday Goodnight from the Graduate School of Youth Ministry in Nashville, Tennessee. We got your information from a conference that you attended a couple of years ago, and we're launching our inaugural class of youth ministers, and we'd really love for you to come. I'm in New York. (laughs) I hang up the phone from the prayer meeting. I'm like, nah, you too late, baby. (laughs) I turn the corner in Brooklyn, and this big dude with a bright orange Tennessee Vol sweatshirt, like bumps into me. I'm like, this is New York. There's two colors in that part of New York, gray and black. That's what people wear. And, and I'm like, this dude's got on a, a UT, uh, University of Tennessee sweatshirt. So I'm like, okay, is that a sign? No, it's not. It's not. God, you called me to this. I, draw, I walk two more blocks and somebody with an orange T hat for Tennessee Tennessee volunteers passes me. And again, it was like, I knew immediately that the Lord was speaking and I, I, with everything inside of me, did not want to listen. Two weeks later, I was driving a car to Tennessee and I was mad. I was mad. I was big mad. I knew that the hounds of heaven had been loosed upon my life. Somewhere along the way, probably at 12, I prayed a prayer. I said, Lord, my life is not my own. And where you go, I'll go. Here I am, Lord, send me. You ever have those moments in your zeal? Maybe on the altar here on a Sunday, oh yeah, I'll go. And then the Lord says, okay, I'm going to cash in that voucher. (laughs) Then you find yourself in the thick of it. And you're like, why am I here? He's like, hey, you pray for it, man. I mean, that's. (laughs) This young man. Was that man. A couple of years later. Found myself in the most violent neighborhood of Nashville, Tennessee, doing gang intervention. You probably, can you, can you find me? Or are you like, where's, where's Waldo? Like, the guy up there on the screen, on the left and with the bandage and on the ground in that picture was a 21, no, 23 at the time, year old youth minister 
doing gang intervention in the worst neighborhood of Nashville, Tennessee. And I felt this call to Hollywood and one of the mentors of my life at that time, he says, JT, you're called, but you're not sent. And the Lord says, it's time to let him prepare you. Because when you're sent, you're gonna be sent with everything that you need to fulfill the assignment that you're called to fulfill. So I'm working and laboring in the inner city and picking up folks and doing Bible studies, trying to negotiate truces between gangs and running these kids around that are skipping school and getting in juvenile detention. All these different things are happening and nothing in my life looks like what I imagined it would be. Here I am, late nights, no glamour, no stages, no lights. It was grimy, it was gritty, it was nasty. And this one particular night, I had been up until about 2.30 dropping kids off in the hood who did not know their address and did not have cell phones and couldn't tell me where they lived. So we're driving around praying, God, is this their house? Like, do I take this street? Eventually getting kids home and then staying up all night, editing a video that was due for the local church. I was serving on their uh, production team and I was angry at 6 a.m. in the morning. I needed to be at the conference by 7.30 because it started at eight or nine. And I get a phone call out of the blue from the lead singer of a band called The Newsboys, uh, an Australian guy named Peter Furler. He's like, I, JT. I'm like, yeah, don't you act? And I was like, well, I understand acting, but I'm not an actor. I went to school, I understand the process, whatever, man, I'm tired. And he's like, yeah, my friend is making a movie and he's looking to cast the role of a 19 year old youth minister who gets guys out of gangs. And since you are a youth minister who gets guys out of gangs, I think you should audition for the role. I'm like, that's great, Peter, I'm tired. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> I hang up the phone. Two minutes later, my pastor calls, who was also my boss. JT, what you doing? Well, Pastor Rice, I was dropping off those kids you make, making me minister to all night, and I'm editing that video that you need for your conference this morning. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> I was mad. He's like, well, stop whatever you're doing. There's auditions at 10 a.m. this morning. Don't worry about the conference. You're relieved from that. I need you to go to this audition. Go to this audition and do what? You need to audition to be in this movie. Pastor Rice, I don't have an agent. I ain't acted in years. I don't even know what's, what are you talking about? So I go to the audition out of obedience. Let me pause right there. The Lord had said earlier, he said, out of the burden of obedience, I will give you a platform. Out of the burden of obedience, I will give you a platform. So I'd surrendered the whole entertainment industry deal. I was doing this serving, I'm in the inner city. And I go to this audition, I walk in, I'm tired, I look crazy, I don't know anybody, I don't have an agent. Everybody's signing what agency, they're, what talent agency they're with and I don't have a headshot, I don't have anything. And I'm like, they're like, who sent you? I said, well, some guy named like Steve Taylor asked me to come. They were like, oh, Steve Taylor. Oh, he's the director, come on through, you know. So I go in and I read the script. And long story short, I land the role of this guy named Tony. Tony is the 19 year old youth minister getting guys out of gangs. And you could see in that picture there, Tony is the youth minister at a black church. And there's a white pastor from the suburbs. The plot is this pastor from the suburbs who's, a, who's like a music star who gets too big for his britches, he's filled with pride. He gets punished basically by the elder board of the church and sent to serve a black inner city pastor. And so the story chronicles the clashes between the suburban world and the urban environment and this contentious relationship as the white pastor goes through this process of humbling and learning from the black pastor and learning how to live and serve among the poor. And in the, in the storyline, Julius, uh, the young man sitting next to me in that screenshot, uh, he wants out of the gang, but in the street life, there is no way out except by death. And so my character, Tony, takes on a Christ-like figure and goes and negotiates 
Julius is released from the gang, but in the process, the gang says, okay, well, it's life for life. And so they beat my character. And they're like, are you, are you willing to take and play the, pay the blood cost to get him out of this gang? And so eventually, uh, the white pastor who's played by a well-known worship leader named Michael W. Smith, the white pastor finds me on the ground, bloodied up, he picks me up, he gets me to safety, and eventually this guy Henry washes my feet because he didn't understand the pain that I was going through post the, the traumatic beating event. And so we exchanged some words. He was not being empathetic with me and my pain. And so eventually there's this reconciliation moment where he washes my feet, which then prompts a reconciliation moment between the white pastor and the black pastor. Why am I telling you this? It's because all of that began to create this space for me not just to be a youth minister. I wasn't just a youth minister. Uh, uh, in the natural or on screen, God was making me a prophetic sign. Out of my yes to Jesus, the Lord took my life. And in fact, my character walks with a limp because during the beating, he injures his left knee. And at the time, I had a torn ACL in my left knee and I was walking with a limp. When God scripts your story, it's only for his glory. And it's actually to produce a sign and a wonder that showcases to the world the reality of his existence in our lives and in our storylines. And so God used this, this movie to begin to bring me before city leaders and different folks in, in circles that were wanting to confront injustice within the city of Nashville and beyond, which eventually led me to Indianapolis, which then eventually led me to go and become a peacemaker in the midst of the riots in Ferguson in 2014. I don't have time to tell all the stories, but I am going to tell some. Last night, Tyler did an incredible job laying some groundwork and some foundational understanding for us concerning what justice and what righteousness is and where we are called in the gospel how we are called to be a people of justice and a people of righteousness and how that cannot be separated from this gospel. But out of the obedience and out of the yes, and I'm not toting my own horn, I want you to hear that out of a posture of prayer, God turned my posture into practical presence. Out of the posture of prayer over and over and over again, radical shifts that have led to practical realities and transformation have begun from the place of prayer. And it was in that place, going to Ferguson to pray in the midst of the city on fire, the first major flashpoint in America, if you can remember that far back. Uh, in decades, since the Rodney King uh, situation in Los Angeles, when George, before George Floyd, seven years prior to Floyd, a young black man in Ferguson, Missouri is killed and suddenly the racial tensions in America explode. The conversation on justice and policing begins to take center stage. And I was there just a prayer walk and God gave us a message called civil righteousness. So this first session, I'm actually introducing you to civil righteousness because you all have heard me preach and teach here. and Many of you have heard portions of the story, maybe on John Mark's podcast. But what is civil righteousness and why is it relevant to Bridgetown? I want to give you a grid for civil righteousness so that then you can understand where we're going from here together. But civil righteousness was a message that honestly came out of another prayer moment. I was praying and preaching and in the spirit, just this concept rose out of my mouth that said uh, uh, inequity or iniquity, sin, sorry, inequity or injustice requires a civil rights movement, but iniquity requires a civil righteousness movement. And Jesus began to, as I said that publicly, uh, 
God just began to bear witness on it in the people who were in the room. And that, that room was a, a stadium filled with 70,000 people. And so people began to reach out to me and say, what is civil righteousness? And I'm like, that's a great question. So I began to ask the Lord and the message began to deepen in my heart. Here's what civil righteousness is today. It's an international movement of holy activism organized as a 501c3 nonprofit charitable organization. Our mission is reconciliation and restorative justice through spiritual, cultural, and economic renewal. Now here are the distinctives of the civil righteousness message. And I'm telling you this again because civil righteousness is in a dynamic partnership now with Bridgetown and with the Church of Portland. And so these are the pillars and some of the theological foundations of the approach to addressing uh, injustice that God has given us. And the first part of that distinctive is that racism is not just resistance, but empowered resistance to and hatred for the beauty of Jesus. We're gonna come back to this in a moment but this is a foundational message for us to begin to think about. Secondly, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Now foundation is a governmental word that has to do with dwelling, the dwelling of God, the dwelling place of God. And we know that God is a king, but this Greek word of makon, makon, a fixed or established place, a foundation area, a dwelling place, a gen Strong's says this, generally a place, especially as an abode, foundation, or habitation. It says righteousness and justice are the habitation of his throne or kisse, kisse, seat of honor, throne, authority, chair, official seat. In other words, righteousness is, and justice are the dwelling place of his authority. Are you with me? Now, again, Tyler did a really amazing job yesterday taking us through the reality that Jesus physically dwells among the marginalized, that he is present with the weak. He shows preference to those who are on the underside of power, even though he, there is no partiality in him. We have to understand and make that clear too. There is no partiality in Christ, meaning he is not a Republican or a Democrat. Is that all right for me to say? <laughs> like God is not an American. Uh-oh. <laughs> now, most of us have some sort of concept of what social justice is, even though I'm sure if I heard from all of you in the room, we might give different definitions. Social justice as a concept in Western culture today is actually pretty abstract and most people have their own, uh, you can form depending on what your worldview is or your ideological position, what you think social justice is. So while we can talk about social justice, I actually believe that it's a little less helpful because it's not as clear as justice, which is ultimately defined by God himself. Like a, a human, a social justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities and privileges within a society, it's kind of this concept of fair and just relations between an individual and society. But social justice devoid of Christ is open to human interpretation and human standards of what justice is, of what is fair and what is equitable based on what we think is best for the common good. Does that make sense? So we cannot allow our engagement of justice and our understanding of justice to be dictated by a definition that's less than the creator and the definer of all things. 
okay? So when we talk, when I say biblical justice, I'm only saying biblical justice to differentiate between social justice, but really if we just said justice, like true justice that stands alone is biblical. Does that make sense? Okay. So justice is a person. We cannot get to the definition of justice without getting to the person of justice. Our lives are hidden in Christ. We have to search him out to find our life. We have to search him out to find out what true justice is. Does that make sense? So in Isaiah 42, we see the person of justice. Jesus is justice. Isaiah 42 is one of my favorite passages. We're not looking at it here in this segment. And I wanna also qualify what I'm talking to you about by saying that it would be an injustice to you for me to attempt to define all of these things in this one session or even in this one weekend. Because the, the truth of the matter is we've tried to lay hold and grapple with very complex uh, layers of truth when it relates to justice and inequity in all of its various forms, not just in the racial conversation, but when it comes to systems and structures, we've tried to do it in maybe a special sermon or a special session or a special summit or a special seminar. I'm here to tell you, Bridgetown, you have to give your life to searching this out. You're not gonna get it from one book or 10 books. You're not gonna get it from one conversation or two social media posts. God wants a fundamental change in our lifestyles and, a, and to release something on the inside that makes us uh, step into our kingly, it says in Proverbs 25, 22, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. God wants us at Bridgetown to be a people who search out the mystery and the understanding of God's heart when it relates to these things. Does that make sense? Isaiah 42 declares Jesus, it says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one upon whom I have placed my spirit for he will bring forth justice to the nations. Goes on and it describes how he will bring forth justice. It says that he will be uh, peaceable. He will not lift his voice in the streets. It says that he will not uh, shout or cry out a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not stuff out. In faithfulness, zealously, he will bring forth justice. Again, this is not on the slides. This is Isaiah 42. You can write that down and read it. He will not falter, in verse four of Isaiah 42, he will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. One of the primary works of Jesus on the earth is to bring justice. That is what he came to do the first time. That is what he's coming to do the second time. You cannot separate the justice conversation from the work of Jesus. It is the primary manifestation of his character and nature and how he is revealing himself in the book of Revelation, which we'll get to later. This messianic passage from the prophet Isaiah describes how the Messiah will function when he arrives on the earth. And some of the characteristics that we see in the Isaiah 42 passage of Jesus that we can take from this where it says, a bruised reed he will not break. Where it says he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. It means he's peaceable. It also means a reed is very gentle, very, very fragile. It says a bruised reed he will not break. He's, he's gentle. It says a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. When I think of a smoldering wick, I think of the church. You are the light of the world, a city on the hill that cannot be hidden. But if we're really honest, how many of you would say you feel like your primary understanding and heart for engaging in justice and the most justice work that you see done in the world you would say, you, you would immediately think the church is really leading the way. In fact, 
How many of you would say you've had most of your justice-related conversations in, at, or around the church? I saw one hand go up, two, two hands. As Tyler said last night, this is not a rebuke, this is an invitation. In our humanity, when we've navigated the Floyd era, when we've navigated an election year, when we've had these whirlwinds of, of civil unrest and, and the pain of the COVID era and all these different things, there's been, maybe rightly so, but there has been a tendency to say, you know what, well, the church is not saying anything. The church is not doing anything. And so we can become so vindictive against the church that we say, you know what, we're just throwing that whole thing out. They don't even have a light. When, when Jesus says, no, your lamp is, is, is burning about that bright, but I'm not going to blow it out. I'm going to actually cause your, what's a tiny flame to turn into a fire. And it says in faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. In other words, he's faithful. That's good news. He is faithful. He has not abandoned us. We are not alone in this intersection of time and history. He will do it. And it says in his teachings, the islands will put their hope for he is hopeful. Another distinctive of our message is that internal transformation leads to external reformation. Internal transformation leads to external reformation. Again, Tyler last night talked about the proof of our faith. The proof of the presence of God at work within our lives is that there should be reformation wherever we go. Our love for Jesus should cause us to be a people who bear the fruits of the presence of Jesus in the places where we go and in the places where we live. Matthew 23, 26, which is a rebuke, says, you hypocrites, you Pharisees, why is it that you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is filled with dry bones and lawlessness? He's talking about our tendency when we see an injustice to immediately talk about what needs to be cleaned on the outside. Just to provoke some of you, because this will be a provocative day. We're going on a provocative journey today. And I'm not stating a personal position here. I'm just saying as an example, the first thing that we do when we see a mass shooting is talk about banning assault weapons, right? And there's a lot of reasons why that could be a great idea, but it also is revealing of our tendency to lean towards solutions that make us feel like we really accomplished something. When the truth of the matter is, if I take this laptop right now and I assault you, it just became a weapon and you just got assaulted, so it became an assault weapon. Do you hear me? I'm not, look, I'm not making case against gun violence. There's a whole nother conversation against, against gun reform, which I actually believe we need some common sense reforms. But what I'm saying is our tendency is what the Hebrew people would, would rip their clothes when you hear of bad news, when there's, when there's grief, when there's mourning, you change, you tear your clothes. When we grief and we're in mourning, the first thing we can think of to change, to show our grief, is what, what law do we need to tear? What, what leader do we need to elect? We, go, we, we basically have a tendency as humans, and the Pharisees are being rebuked by Jesus for this, we have a tendency to do something immediate and tangible that we can see on the outside, but it does not affect change on the inside. Does that make sense? And so Jesus's mode of doing justice is he confronts the internals 
And then from the place of internal trans, uh, uh, transformation, then we step into the arena of the civil and social government and we're motivated not by pity, but by divine compassion. Does that make sense? Have you noticed, even in the gun violence situation, everybody wants gun reform right after the shooting, and then there's this hard push for like a month or two months, and then there's no more tragic mass shootings, and so we go back to life as normal, la-da-da-da-da, and then another one happens. Oh, we gotta change the reforms. We gotta get the assault weapons out, and then, it dies down and we go back. And it's because it was never an internal conviction. It was worldly sorrow. It was motivated from, from something out here. Does that make sense? Rather than something in here that gives you staying power, that, that helps you press the issue because it's a burden from heaven and not a burden from the news cycles. Again, I don't want to offend you on the gun violence thing. I'm just using it as an example. Are you with me? Yes. So he says, clean the inside of the cup. 2 Corinthians 5, the church has been given the ministry of reconciliation. This is a key passage for us. And I'm, I'm saying this because I'm laying a foundation right now for us to deep dive into these topics in the fall, both from the pulpit and in our justice center. We wanna have ongoing classes around these. And I'm talking night classes during the week where you can come and do a deep dive study, you know, on reconciliation for weeks on end and, and where we can really unpack these things. There's no possible way we can do it today, okay? But in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that we have been committed the word of reconciliation. So when you hear Bridgetown Justice, this was actually going to be named the Bridgetown Justice Reconciliation and Mercy Summit, but all the cool creative guys were like, that's too long, JT. <laughs> it just needs to be the Justice Summit. Okay, you're right, all right. But as a community, we will embrace the word reconciliation. It is not our idea. It is God's idea. It is God's word. And in Corinthians, we see that Jesus has come to reconcile all things to himself through himself. All things. And we are now the stewards of the ministry of reconciliation and the word reconciliation. Now, some people in the racial justice and social justice movements don't like the word reconciliation. They're like, ah, we don't want to talk about reconciliation. We want to talk about justice. Justice is, in fact, the reconciliation of that which is wrong to right. Does that make sense? So to say, I don't want to talk about reconciliation, that means you don't want to talk about justice. Because that's actually what justice is. Finally, peacemaking is our calling, our inheritance, and our distinction. Matthew 5 tells us, it says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. There will be increasing chaos in the world. Folks, it's not going to die down. It's only going to get crazier. And in the midst of more cultural chaos and more uh, global unrest and more injustice, God raises up in his wisdom a, a family, a multi-ethnic, multicultural family of shalom makers. And one of the distinctions of the shalom of God is that you have peace when nobody else does. When everybody else is freaking out, Jesus says, peace, my peace I give to you, not as the world does. He says, set your minds on things above. Whatever is noble, whatever is excellent, whatever is trust, trustworthy, whatever is good, think upon those things and I will guard your heart and mind. You'll be kept in perfect peace. So that means when the storm is raging, you can be asleep in the boat like Jesus. Not passive, not indifferent, but at rest. But another manifestation of that peace 
is that we actually physically have the ability to change atmospheres. Places that are in pandemonium, diaminon, pandemonic activity, widespread manifestation of chaos and lawlessness. God gives us the authority to step in as carriers of the prince. Prince is a governmental word of peace. We show up on location and without saying a word, we stand there and suddenly the demons that are causing chaos all around us are, are brought into captivity by the Prince of Peace. Now you're like, okay, that sounds really strange, JG. <laughs> I'm gonna show you some stories. I can't believe it's already 10, 16. I gotta speed this baby up. I'm gonna tell you and show you some stories of how this is a reality and has become a reality within the civil righteousness movement and how we are going to do this together in Portland. We're gonna do this together in Portland, okay? Another form of peacemaking, again, that's a whole four hour teaching. I have a whole four hour teaching on peacemaking. So we'll do that in, the, in our justice center in the days ahead. But shalom making, shalom mean, meaning wholeness or completeness, part of the work of justice is to go into the places that are broken and bring the shalom, to work to make that which is broken whole. If it's a broken educational system, we wanna make it whole. If it's a broken uh, financial system, we want to make it whole. We want to be the peacemakers. That means that my creative giftings and my creative degree was not wasted because we are all creatives partnering with God, the great maker, as he is remaking the earth, refashioning the brokenness of humanity, taking the raw materials to form for us a place where he can dwell. Does that make sense? Now, in justice, I put racism is resistance to the image of God within man. It's hatred for the beauty of Jesus. Well, injustice is the violation of God. It's first not a violation against you if you're on the wrong side of power or if you, if you, if you have been oppressed. It's not, you can actually be freed from some of your offense by understanding it wasn't just you who got offended, it was actually God. Injustice is a violation of God, it's a violation of his law, and it's a violation of his image bearers. So we also get violated by injustice. Matthew 25, truly I tell you, as you have done to the least of these, so also have you done to me. John 15, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first, since they persecuted me naturally, they will persecute you. Now the rejection of Jesus within humanity is the spirit of the Antichrist. The rejection of Jesus within humanity is the spirit of the Antichrist. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not tolerate or that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. What this means is that if I deny that Christ is in you, if I deny that you even have the capacity to carry Christ and I treat you as such, what I have done is come into agreement with the spirit of the Antichrist, which hates Jesus and hates what Jesus looks like. And so when I reject that he has been incarnated within you or that you have the capacity to be a carrier of Christ, which has happened not only with people of color whose slave master says, well, these are, these are ravenous beasts and they don't have souls, so there's no way that Christ can dwell in them. And if so, they definitely can't preach and teach because God would not steward and entrust divine mysteries to a low level animal like this. That was the spirit of the Antichrist saying Christ is not in you. If I say to a woman, you know what? Well, I, I can get the revelation, but you know what? You can't. 
What I've just done is deny the Imago Dei within that expression in that gender. Does that make sense? And so I'm coming into agreement with the, the, very, the very spirit that is in opposition to Jesus. And that's why this is an issue. Now, in 1 John 4, we see this passage, but in the next verse, it says, no one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world and whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us for God is love. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love is the litmus test as to whether or not we are in God. But this is the real part, the, the, the fearful part. If someone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have, that he who loves God must love his brother also. If you want to know whether or not you are even in the faith at all, the question is, do you love your brother? If you do not love your brother, which then the question goes, who is my brother? Am I my brother's keeper? That goes into the conversation about our neighbor, loving your neighbor as yourself. The bottom line is God has put the litmus test to our hearts and to the nations and to the church mostly to say, if your relationships and your community does not manifest the love of God, then that means that your love has been hindered by a spirit that is anti-Christ and you are not even of Christ. Is that too much? God is correcting the leaven that's been in our hearts and he's driving out the antichrist spirit out of the church. This is not a rebuke. This is an invitation. All of us at some level or some measure have inherited antichrist ideas, antichrist ways of thinking, Antichrist ways of being. That's why we're in the house of the Lord so we can become like him, right? So this should be helpful. Now, anytime the spirit, I, I'm talking about the spirit because we often talk about these issues from a purely sociological standpoint and we will, but what we don't talk enough about in the church is how the spiritual world is influencing our sociology. And so anytime the antichrist spirit dictates a violation against a person, a place, or a group of people, that spirit, what we have to understand in the, in the supernatural world is that there are governments and there are structures just like we have a mayor and just like you have a state, federal, and local government. There are, there are hierarchies in the spirit that have jurisdiction over cities, over regions, over nations, over families, over bloodlines, and it's very, very real. By the time I'm done at Bridgetown, you're going to understand the spiritual hierarchy and you're going to know how to move above it. But I need you to understand this. Here in the West, we act like what we can see is more real than what we cannot see. Where we enter into maturity in this conversation is that we're going to have insight and we're going to have eyesight. We're going to have eyesight in the natural, what we see in our city and what we understand through whatever academic or experiential training we have. But then we're going to have supernatural spiritual insight. Does that make sense? So that's why I need you to go here with me for just a second. Now, 
When the Antichrist spirit finds a heart that that can come into alignment with it, what happens is rulers of wickedness in high places in the structure of the spiritual realm. This is what Ephesians talks about. Rulers of wickedness then begin to dictate certain things to, let's say, uh, a, a governor. Let's say the governor of Oregon. So the governor of Oregon does not know that this pathology of oppression that is being fueled by an antichrist spirit, they might, they might even love God, but something in their family line, they grew up in an era where slaves were slaves and, and so, or enslaved persons were, were, were slaves. And so they, they just were taught from day one, just born into it, like just never gave it a second thought. And this person rises in the ranks and becomes the governor of Oregon. And so when this person's in power, the enemy is saying, now I have a man that I can use. And so one night he's drinking with his buddies or whatever, and this idea comes up. You know what we could do? We could keep, we could keep these mongrels out of Oregon forever. Let's write it into our constitution. Let's make sure. And he just thinks, he might even think it's a noble cause. Like, you know what? White people are pure. We're a pure race. So, so let's preserve the beauty of this Pacific mountainous escape, you know, this landscape. And so, so he comes up with this idea, let's create an oasis for God, right? Let's keep it pure. And so in 1844, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but this is hypothetical, right? So in 1844, Oregon excludes blacks. The provisional government of Oregon enacts the region's first exclusion law. This law included the infamous last law, which inquired black people whether free or enslaved to be whipped twice a year in order to wear them out until they decide to quit the territory. The penalty is later changed to forced labor. Now, when that happened at the highest level, when that became law, it literally created a, a violation of God himself it codified in the law and then gave the spirit, the spiritual realm of darkness authority over Oregon. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's like if I said, I don't like this. It, it, so th this is the impact of something like this. It releases governing authority over a state. So now if I personally, as a black man, decide to go move into Bend, Oregon, which I've never been to, but I heard it's like a white people's utopia. <laughs> That's what I heard, I don't know. But if I, if, if I go there and I'm like, yo, I wanna, I wanna live here. It may not even be legally on the books now, that a realtor can't sell a house to me or that I'm not welcome, but I might show up in Ben and suddenly I feel some kind of way. Like I show up and I'm like, whoa, for some reason, I just really do not feel like I'm welcome here. Is it me, honey? My wife is white. And we've traveled all over the place. And there are cities and regions where we're doing fine, we ain't thinking about racial stuff at all, and we pull up at a gas station and the moment I step out of the car, now she feels it too, she's even stronger than me. We'll pull up somewhere and she's like, uh, nope, not this one, honey. We feel, it's spiritual. And though the, the land doesn't look like what's in the spirit, it's still there. And though the laws have changed, it's still there. Because the only people that can remove the legal authority of that power and principality are those who have been seated with Christ in heavenly places far above powers and principalities that we might come and take captive every thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? So there are portals in the spirit that are open and these violations create a breach. Everybody say breach. It creates breaches or gaping holes 
in the walls of protection or the walls of righteousness around people, persons, places, and things. Those same powers and principalities begin to dictate structures. And that's what the Bible calls strongholds. Not just in your mind. I'm talking about in the spirit. There are, there are, there are these instruments that then are codified and given legal a power to legal power or authority to dictate the way we live together by manifesting in the form of zoning laws and, and uh, various lending practices with financial institutions and, and various ways that you know, immigrants and refugees are or are not being received. And, and so these violations continued. Another violation, when Oregon became the only state admitted to the union with an inclusion law, exclusion law written into its state constitution, banning any free Negro mulatto not residing in this state at the time from living, holding real estate, and making any contracts within the state. That's interesting because today, as I've been meeting with black pastors and leaders all over Portland, one of the first and most uh, prolific things that I keep hearing is black leaders saying, we have no sense of place. We've been driven out of our communities. Gentrification, we can't afford it anymore. If I'm honest, Bridgetown, this very neighborhood. Well, what do we do? Well, let's just... It goes way, way, way back. There's a spirit that's been at work since way before this building was built. And yet I walk through the streets around Bridgetown and every house, at least half of them, have Black Lives Matter signs in the front yard. We love black people. Black Lives Matter. Do they really? What does that mean to you? Do you realize you're living in a house that somebody built with their own hands? A black person? Do you realize that you actually drove them out? Now, I'm not saying this as a rebuke, but an invitation, we have to look at the hard things that some of these signs that are on the businesses and in the front yards aren't because Black Lives Matter, it's because you feel like if you got the sign up, there won't be any uh, rioters on your front door. Is that too harsh for me to say from the stage? See, God wants to actually dismantle a false justice, a paper-thin justice that does not take any ownership or responsibility or put you in proximity. Do you hear what I'm saying? But before you can just go out here and I wouldn't knock on doors and tell people to start giving their houses back, back to black people. That's not what I'm doing. <laughs> oh, is that what we doing, JC? <laughs> but I'm saying that there's spiritual work to be done. We have to break the contracts and the covenants and the agreements in the spiritual world. Does that make sense? Then gain wisdom from, from God as to what now it looks like in the, in the natural, in the practical. Now, I gotta really, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hurry this up so that we can take a break. But let me tie this all together in a bow tie for you. The spiritual breach, which creates legal authority for systemic violations. The systemic violations, we'll go a few slides back to the, the one that says spiritual breach, which creates legal authority for systemic violations, for ongoing violations, which the violation creates wounding. The wounding doesn't just rest with one generation, it, goes, it passes down to the third or fourth generation. So now you have people who are living with people on the underside of power, not just blacks. I'm talking about anyone who's experienced a violation of the image of God whose spirit has been violated, wounds get created. There's even research about epigenetic, uh, 
epigenetics where there's wounding in your DNA cells, trauma. And it creates transgenerational wounding, which then leads to pathologies of oppression. Meaning like the way we think and the way we function and live, all of us are suffering. We've inherited certain pathologies of trauma. And then that enculturated some things that we have codified as just culture, just the way things are, the way we do things. Some of those things are actually just trauma. And God actually wants to heal our trauma which will then actually change our cultural expression. And that trauma perpetuates cycles of injustice.